Well, good morning, CBC. It is uh, always a joy for me to come before you and open up God's Word uh, with you, especially after uh, such an amazing Resurrection Sunday last week. Um, I just want to say what, what an encouragement to my soul that was to, to meditate on, on, on the evidence that Jesus is alive today, that the tomb is empty, and, and to think about the assurances that, that brings us. I just wrote a, a few that struck me that, that we too will be raised up with him, that our sins have been wiped away, have been wiped clean, that we will eventually be with God in resurrected bodies, all because he's alive, all because he's risen. Now, as encouraging as that is, what uh, the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with Jesus is alive and that's it. Even Luke and John keep going because there's more to be said about Jesus. The fact that Jesus is alive has implications on how you live your life. The fact that he's alive impacts the very, very reason why you're here on earth today. It impacts your goals. It should impact your ambitions because Jesus is alive today. You as a Christian have, in fact, a mission from Christ himself. So we have such encouragement, but Jesus being alive means that there's a mandate, means there's a responsibility, means that we have something to do. And so that's what I want to be looking at this morning. We'll be in Matthew 28 this morning. We're going to continue uh, and we're going to finish off the book of Matthew. We're going to be in verses 16 through 20. And we're going to be looking at a familiar passage known as the Great Commission. That's specifically verses 19 to 20. And it is rightly seen as the mission to the church from Christ. It is Christ's mission to the church. And, And it answers the question, why is the church here? Why is the church here? What is the church's primary mission in being on the earth? Now, I think if you ask that, just asked it around the United States, like, what is the church for? I think you get a lot of different answers. I think you'll get, well, the church is to, to provide fellowship, fellowship among Christian believers. But then we would have perfect fellowship in heaven. Um, so why does it have to be here on earth? You could ask, maybe some will say that it's to, it's to worship the Lord, but then again, we'll be, per, we'll be worshiping perfectly in heaven. Or maybe it's to steady the word of God. But again, in heaven, we're going to know the word of God perfectly. So why are we here? And the reason we see is uh, that Jesus gives us in verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples. That is why we're here. We are to call others to faith. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to ultimately, or we're here, we're ultimately here to make disciples. Now, I don't want to say that the other ministries that the the church gives is useless. That's not what I'm saying. All those ministries that we have here at the church support that overall mission that Jesus gives us. And I like how John Piper said it. Says missions exist because worship doesn't. There are parts in this world where worship does not exist. And it is our role as believers, as a church, to go out and see that worship does exist by proclaiming the gospel to them. So how do we do this? I think if you know the, the Great Commission, it could seem overwhelming. It says, make disciples of all nations. So we're responsible for making disciples of all nations. And just look at that, that sounds just daunting. How do we even start? Well, I think the text that we're looking at this morning answers those questions. But here's a quick spoiler alert. Please don't leave in the middle of the sermon. The only reason it's not overwhelming is because we have a risen Redeemer. It's not because of us. We have a risen Redeemer who has been given all authority over heaven and earth. That's it. That's why it's not overwhelming. Not because the church is so effective. It's not because the church is so spotless. It's not. Church has a lot of errors and is far from being perfect. It's not because we're so good at arguing or debates or apologetics. It's not that. 
The only reason why we could fulfill this mandate is because we serve an all-powerful God who desires to call sinners to himself. That's it. And we are merely instruments in his hands. So what we're seeing in our passage this morning, we're going to look at four fundamental principles for, for executing the Great Commission, four principles for disciple-making, four principles that I hope would, would guide you and encourage you and instruct you to obey the mission for the church. And, and my hope this morning, as we go through this familiar passage, and as we, as we look at the context surrounding the passage, um, my hope is that you will be encouraged to share the good news of the risen Lord to the lost that you will be awestruck of the, 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 the amazing Savior that we serve and that you would want to go out and make disciples, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, but out of an overflow of your worship to the King of Kings. So let's read. We're in Matthew 28. I'll start from verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Uh, Father, we just come before you right now and to recognizing the, the vastness of this command, the number of souls who you want to come to yourself, who you are calling, and you are telling us to go find those souls. Lord, I pray that as we study this passage this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would motivate our hearts so that we would have such a desire for the lost that we will go out to proclaim your name and that we may see those souls come to you. It's Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at um, Matthew 28. The glorious resurrection that we talked about last Sunday has already happened. Uh, by the time we get to verse 16, at this point, the disciples have already left Jerusalem. They're no longer in Jerusalem. You can see in verse 7 and in verse 10 of Matthew 28 that the, the, that the risen Savior, Jesus, told the woman, go tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. A few things happen between verse 15 and 16, however. Um, by this time, by the time we took to get to verse 16, the disciples have already had three encounters with the risen Lord. And it has been, if you kind of, guesstimate how long it takes to travel, how many days has it been since they were at Galilee, and those kind of things. It's about 20 to 30 days after Resurrection Sunday. Okay, so this is a few days away. This is as if we were to come back here maybe two weeks from now. And the disciples are still trying to wrap their heads around what happened in Jerusalem and I just want to pause here before we get into the, the passage. I just want to pause here and, and marvel at the Savior. Even after Jesus died on the cross, even after he resurrected, the work is done. It is finished. It is completed. He is risen. And yet he is still shepherding these 11. The risen Lord patiently appears to the disciples multiple times at least three times that's recorded in scripture, showing himself to them, proving to them that he is physically alive, that he is glorified in his human body. And I mean, just think about Thomas. Thomas was doubting to the point of unbelief. The Bible says he was unbelieving. And Jesus appears to him and says, look, feel my hands, feel the side. Look at Peter. Peter, where we just read today, deny the Lord. And Jesus comes to him when they're fishing, calls him, well, Peter sees him, jumps in the water, swims towards him, they have breakfast, and Jesus restores Peter. And I just think about what the disciples saw. I think for any of the gospels, it's easy to be like, 
man, disciples, how come you just don't get it? Jesus told you he was going to be alive, and there he is. But think about what they saw. They saw their leader, their Messiah. They saw this, this king of kings become the man of sorrows, bearing a thorn, a, a thorn on his brow. They saw him die a public, shameful death where before he was given this, this illegal, fake trial. And they are completely wrecked when it comes to the end of Friday night on the Good Friday. And Jesus comes to minister to their hearts. He doesn't say, get up, it's time to go. He repeatedly re appears to them, talks to them, and is gentle and patient with them. And my brothers and sisters, we serve that patient, gentle, compassionate king. He is the same king. He is the same Messiah he was then. And he's the same Messiah he was to the, to the disciples as he is to us. And so here are the disciples, verse 16. I think because of the patience of Christ in a better place now, and they're at verse 16, the designated mountain in Galilee. Now, I'm not sure when Jesus said, this is a mountain we're going to go to. Um, we don't have that in scripture. I, I just like to think that there was a, something happened when they're in, in one of their, their, their many journeys through Galilee. He, maybe like Thomas tripped over a mountain. <laughs> he said, you know where Thomas tripped over? Let's go there. So there's some kind of, some kind of mountain that they know to meet at. And so Jesus says, at the designated mountain, they go, and what I love about the disciples is that they obeyed that. Said, we're going to go to that mountain, and they're there at the appointed time. But here's verse 17. is We're going to see Jesus approaching. Say, when they saw him, in verse 17, they worshiped him. And that brings us to our first point, our first foundational principle for, for making disciples. It is that worship needs to fuel your evangelism. Worship needs to fuel your evangelism. As they saw Jesus approaching from a distance, they fall down and worship. And the verb here means to bow down. It is in recognition of deity, in recognition of some visible majesty. They bow down and they worship. Kind of interesting trivia question here. When was the first time that his disciples worshipped the, the risen Lord? Remember, I said he appeared three times to them. And this is the first time that they actually worshipped, that the word there is worshipped. Now, to be fair, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I guess, you know, you could count that as, as worship, perhaps. Um, the disciples rejoiced when they saw their Savior. So the, they weren't always responding negatively. But this is the first time this word for worship is used. But then you contrast that to the woman. Remember the woman last week, they come up to Jesus. They see Jesus. It doesn't take them, what is it, 20 or 30 days for them to fall before their feet. They fall before his feet right there and they worship him. Same word. But I just think this speaks again to the, the patience of Jesus for his disciples. He's patiently preparing his disciples so that they could put aside their doubt. So they could put aside what they're struggling with. They could get to a place of worship and then they could be ready for what Jesus has to, get to tell them. And this is so critical for evangelism. So critical for obeying the Great Commission. Worship fuels evangelism. Worship orients your heart to see the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the glory of God and it moves us to proclaim him. And this makes sense. We usually enjoy speaking about what we share, cherish. We, we enjoy speaking about what you love. Um, have you ever talked to somebody not knowing they're an enthusiast of something, like a car enthusiast or a stamp collector or, let's say, a physicist, and you say something to them, and all of a sudden, all this excitement and information and, like, whoa, I had no idea you were so into it. And almost to the point where like, you know, once that faucet opens, it's like there's no closing it. You're like, okay, let me just try to quiet you down. <laughs> That's because there, there's something in there that they love. There's something in them that they just can't wait to tell you about. And as soon as you give them the opening, they're like, yes, let's go. Let's talk about it. If you talk to me about physics, you'll know. It's because people love to speak on what they love. 
People love to speak about love. And brothers and sisters, how much more and how much willing should we be to speak about the Savior whom we love and not only love, but whom we worship? I love how 1 Peter 2.9 puts it. Uh, let's go there. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.9. So 1 Peter 2.9 puts this in, 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 a, in a helpful way. And we could go through a lot of Psalms that kind of highlight the same thing. But 1 Peter 2.9 says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Okay, so that's who we are. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, First Peter tells us that we are God's people. We are God's chosen people. We are his royal priesthood. And, and Peter looks at that and says, because you're God's chosen people, because you are his own possession, you need to proclaim his excellencies. You know what it is to, be, to see his wonderful works. You know what it is for God to go into your heart, give you a heart of flesh, take out your heart stone, give you a heart of flesh, give you new life, and you need to go proclaim his excellencies. That proclaiming, that proclaiming only comes as a result of worship. It only happens if your life is filled with worship, if you're constantly before the throne of God, praising him for what he has done. And as you meditate on God, you start to think of the grace he's shown. In 1 Peter 2, he's talking about the mercy. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The goodness of God in your life and the amazing grace he's shown to you on and on, all the things God has done, your worship will lead you to proclaim the glories of God. Your worship will be God's marvelous light shining to those who are still in darkness. Let me just say a couple of things about worship. Worship shouldn't stay, I would say, in the church service. I don't think worship should be something that you keep in a prayer closet. I think worship should propel you to the lost. I think worship should just be so ready on your lips that just like what we talked about, someone says something about parenting, someone says something about sacrifice, someone says something related, even minutely to the scriptures, you're so filled with worship that you just can't, you just can't wait to tell. There's a reason why many Psalms end with, I will, tell you, I will tell of your great works and I will tell the nations of the glory, of your glory. It is because they have seen the excellencies of God. They must tell it, not out of compulsion. It is not out of duty, out of pure joy and praise. So what do we have to proclaim? What do we worship and what do we proclaim as excellencies? And you just look at Jesus. In Jesus, we have a God who came down, a God who took on flesh, a God who bore the cross taking our sins upon the cross, taking the wrath of God for us, giving us forgiveness and defeated death and sin and is now alive. He has risen, proving to us, proving to us that everything he said was true. And you ask, well, why did he do that? What did we do to receive that such grace and such mercy? The answer is Nothing. We did nothing, and it was all because of his love for us. So what is your response to that? Our response to that is worship. What else could we do? We worship, and with that worship, we proclaim the message to the lost around us. We worship him, and then we let our worship shine before men. The worship fuels our evangelism. Now let's go back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 28 here. So we saw the disciples have one reaction. The reaction was worship. They see Jesus walking and they worship him. First time that was recorded in the scriptures of, of how they were responding. But verse 17 has another response. So verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Now there's a couple of questions about who are, who are these some? Are we talking about the 11? Possibly. Uh, I think there's a good case for, 
for some of the 11 being doubtful, I mean, what we just talked about in the beginning is that there were, Jesus had appeared to him three times. So that's not completely out of the question. Um, there is another interpretation of that where it could be uh, the 500, uh, 500 witnesses that see Jesus, and this is back in uh, well, first, first Corinthians uh, 15, 6. So it could be the 500. But and which, by the way, I lean towards the 500. I think it's, I think that's a better case for that. But whatever the case, this doubt is a little bit different than what we see, like what you would have Thomas. Thomas was an unbelief. And even then, there was a doubt that the, that the disciples had when they first saw Jesus. And that's a different word for doubt too. That doubt was the doubt from reasoning. So you have a doubt that's unbelief, like Thomas. You have a doubt that's more related to reasoning, like how this can't be, this doesn't make sense, so therefore I doubt it, which is what the disciples are doing. But this word for doubt is the same word from Matthew 14, 31. And that's the story when Peter is walking on water. And if you remember the story, Peter's walking on water. Jesus is walking on water. He says, Lord, I want to walk on water with you. Call me out. And he starts walking on the water. And then he looks at the waves and Peter starts to sink. And so Jesus picks up and says, you a little faith. Why do you begin to doubt? That's a different word for doubt. That doubt is more of a wavering faith. It's almost like a hesitation. It's like Peter out there, he's on the way. He's like, okay, I'm doing this, but now I don't know. And so that's the kind of doubt we're looking at. It's indicative of, a, of a, maybe a hesitation or, or, or a wavering faith. The people at the mountain are, are seeing something and they're like, I just don't know. So the doubt sets in when they start to focus on this impossibility of Jesus being alive, just like Peter, the impossibility of him walking on water in the midst of these huge waves. And they, they want to believe, but they can't believe their eyes. And I just love that verse 17 is there. I just love that, they, that Matthew throws in doubt because what does Jesus do in verse 18? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, if you're still doubting, this, this is after three times, guys, please leave. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, in verse 18, he says, all authority has been given to me. If anything, that's going to encourage them. He, Jesus continues to be patient, even in the doubts. And I just want to speak, if, if, if you're dealing with doubts this morning, maybe, maybe you're hesitant uh, to trust Jesus with his promises. Maybe you're in the midst of these trials surrounding your life right now, and you, just, you want to believe, but you're looking at everything around you, and, and you just doubt if that's you, my brother or sister, I, I recommend and beg you to keep looking at the empty tomb. Jesus is not there. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, that means he has all power and authority, and that means he is at work. Meditate on the reality that we celebrated last week. And Jesus is the same Christ who was patient with Thomas, who was patient with his disciples. He's the same Christ, and he's going to be patient with you. Those waves of doubt come. Those waves of doubt come. I encourage you to, to cling to Jesus. Cling to the promise. Nothing can be as true as his word. So you cling to his word. And you pray to him. Pray honestly. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God will honor that. Now, if you're listening to this, and you say to yourself, I don't believe this. I don't believe Jesus is alive. I don't believe the Bible to be true. If that's you this morning, I would ask to consider the evidences and the testimony and the claims of Scripture. We talked about that last week. We talked about the four evidences of Scripture. Please listen to that. But the, the, the truth is that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is risen from the dead. And the truth is that Jesus is going to return as judge. And if he's alive, that means everything he said is true. If he's alive, that means your sin is on you. And, and you will be judged for that one day. But yet the Bible says anyone who comes to Jesus can find rest. Anyone who comes to Jesus can be forgiven of their sins. This message is coming to you the one who don't believe is coming to you from the risen Christ himself who is alive today. And I just, 
and ask him, don't let another day go by. I beg you to turn to Jesus. And if you're having a hard time with that, don't leave without talking to somebody. Talk to me, talk to a pastor, talk to anybody in CBC. We would love to talk to you. Our Savior is gentle and he's patient. And when it comes to believers, he will keep encouraging. He will keep working in us. And that's what we see in this passage. He keeps working on these disciples, and these disciples are led to worship. So our first principle, worship must fuel our evangelism. And while worship is foundational, I think closely, closely related to that is submitting and trusting in his authority. And this is our second foundational principle. So our first one is uh, worship fuels evangelism. Our second is we need to submit and trust his authority. So we go to verse 18. Verse 18, in the midst of these disciples, some of them doubting, Jesus says this incredibly strong statement. So verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Think about what that means, in heaven and on earth. That means on earth, that means any government, any people, anyone on the earth does not have more authority than Christ. And we could think about that in heaven, any power, any ruler, any angelic being, any demon or Satan himself does not have more authority than Christ. Christ could do what he wants. The plans of Christ will not be thwarted. He has supremacy, not just, not just on earth, but in heaven too. And this is the claim he makes to his disciples. And just think about what the disciples just saw. Right, 20, 30 days ago from this point, they just saw their Savior being mocked, being spat on, being slapped, being crucified, and died. That's what they saw. What a contrast now. This is not the man of sorrows. This is the king of kings. All authority has been given to me. And I just love how the New Testament writers describe Christ. I just want to, I have a whole bunch of verses to you. I'm not going to, if you want to list them, uh, I'll gladly give them to you. But I just want to read them. And I kind of mash them together. This is what the New Testament writers write about Christ. So we read that in dying on the cross, Jesus defeated death. So he has defeated death and Defeating death, he is now Lord of the living and the dead. He, and, and in the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. On the cross, he made a public display of them, triumphing over them. And when God raised him from the dead, God gave him a name above all names. And, he, and God put all things in subjection under his feet. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, having all angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. We kind of compile that and we take a step back and look at who Jesus is. There's nothing the risen Christ cannot do. Nothing. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can keep him from his church. Nothing can keep him from reaching the hardest sinner possible. This Messiah is given all authority all power and dominion, and he will eventually return. Okay. So that sounds great. What does this have to do with disciple making? What does this have to do with the Great Commission? Two things. First, when we, when we hear that, we have to recognize the authority of Christ. And recognizing the authority of Christ means that you should have confidence and hope in obeying his commands. You think about and I say the word evangelism, what fears come? Uh, I think it's uncomfortable sharing the gospel at times when you start to fear other things, when you start to fear how people are going to react, when you start to have the fear of man, worrying what others think, say, and do over fearing the Lord, when you start to fear retaliation, when you start to fear even saying the wrong thing, right? all those fears kind of sink in when we talk about evangelism. And I think it's like Peter. Think about Peter when he was sinking in the water. When Peter was sinking in the water, 
being intimidated by those waves, the waves pounding on the boat, and took his eyes off Jesus and began looking at what's around him. I kind of want to just yell at Peter. Right? If only you knew that every single swell, every single wave was only being moved by the power of Christ. That each wave that crashed into the boat crashed under the allowance of the Savior. And this is our Savior. We don't need to live with these fears lingering around us, preventing us from obeying his commands. He has all power and authority. So instead of fear, we look to who Jesus is and we proclaim confidently the gospel that Jesus told us to proclaim. So that's one. We have confidence and hope. Second, because he has all authority, very simply, we, have, we must obey him. To disregard to minimize his commands, to deny his authority, and to deny his reign is to take his statement and ignore it. Now, this is a hard question. Do you choose not to share the gospel at times when you very well could have? I'll be honest, yes. There are times where I so desire to share the gospel, but fear sets in. And when fear sets in, what is that saying? The authority of Christ is not enough for me. We have to remember who our risen Lord is. He has been given all authority, all authority over the earth and the heaven. Nothing is out of his domain. Nothing is a challenge to him. So why not have that extra conversation with a coworker? Why not? Approach your family member. Why not give your friend a call who you haven't called in so long and tell them about the gospel? We should jump at opportunities to let our worship spill out, not again and not out of a, out of, out of a forced obligation, but if worship is fueling this, we so desire to proclaim it. So out of a joyful submission, we proclaim the gospel. So that is our second principle that we are to submit and we are to trust in his authority. Now, what does Jesus do with his power? You know, he has his unchallenged power. Does he say to Peter, Peter, I have now all this power. Pick up your sword. It's, it's time to start cutting off some more ears. No, no. Does he tell Simon the zealot that, like, hey, you ready? We're going to take Rome now. You know how Jesus uses his power and authority? He commands his disciples to go into the world and proclaim the life-giving gospel, starting where? Go to Acts, starting in Jerusalem. Starting with the people who murdered Jesus, he says, I have all power and authority. I want you to go to my murderers and tell them of the gospel. You know, we, we serve an all-powerful supreme messiah but he is a redeemer. My brothers and sisters, he is a redeemer. He redeems souls. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so he chooses his power to do just that, to seek and to save the lost. So we are to obey this command. Now, what I want to do is look at the command. Look at the command in verse 19. And we're going to go... A little faster through this. I wanted to really focus on the context here surrounding this verse, but we will look at this verse. So verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Our third principle for disciple making is to obey the command. It's that simple. Obey the command. This is a great commission. This is the command that Jesus not only gives the disciples, but he gives the church. Now, how do I know it's for the church? How do I know that it's not just for the disciples? Well, the promise is the end. Jesus has in mind the end of the age. Jesus has in mind when he returns in his second coming. And so he's looking past the disciples. He's, he's looking at future church leaders. He's looking at future missionaries. He's looking at, at future believers. And so this is a command coming from the head of the church 
to the body of the church. Now, really quick, what do you think about when you, when you hear the Great Commission? I think maybe you think about street evangelism. Uh, maybe you think about a, a missionary going from town to town, spreading the gospel, and, and amen to that. We want to see that. That is the Great Commission. But if that is not the whole picture of the Great Commission. The reason why I say it's not the whole picture is because we have to look at the verbs that, that, that Jesus uses here. And the main verb in verse 19, uh, it's not go, it's not baptizing, it's not teaching. The main verb is make disciples. And make disciples is one word in the Greek, essentially meaning cause others to be followers and learners. And in, the context, cause, in this context, cause others to be followers and learners of Christ. This goes beyond just sharing the gospel. You know, and, and obeying the Great Commission, the, uh, obeying the Great Commission doesn't mean you have that one hard conversation and you say, okay, box checked, Great Commission done, let me move on. The Great Commission is about loving people. It's about being so devoted to the lost, so devoted to seeing them have not just changed lives, but seeing them become lifelong learners and followers of Christ. This is so important. And it's so important because the Great Commission is more about than a command. Jesus, what Jesus is doing in the Great Commission is Jesus is continuing his own ministry. In John 20, 21, we won't go there, but John 20, 21, Jesus says uh, to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So as Jesus came to seek and save the lost, so Jesus sends the disciples and by extension us to seek and save the lost. We continue the ministry that Jesus started. Jesus is our cornerstone and we continue that ministry and, and proclaim the gospel to others. But there's another aspect of this. In John 10, a lot of you are familiar with John 10. This is where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I laid down my, my life for the sheep. But then he says this, I have other sh sheep which are not of this fold. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, they, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is speaking about these other sheep. Well, these other sheep are his sheep outside of Israel. These other sheep are the Gentile believers, and Jesus doesn't go to the nations in his earthly ministry. And he goes to Samaria, but he doesn't go to Rome, and he doesn't go to where all, all the, the apostles go to. So who's going to get those sheep? The Great Commission is sent to us, is given to us by Jesus so that we could continue his ministry, so that we could get those sheep, that we could call out those sheep, and those sheep will hear the voice of Jesus through the gospel. So that's the command, is to get those other sheep, to go to all nations. Now, if I were there, if I was with Peter, standing just next to Peter, and Jesus says, go to all nations, I'd be like, uh, there's 11 of us. I don't know how many nations there are. Even if there's 500 of us, 511, uh, that sounds like a tall order. It's an intimidating command. But, but don't miss this. This is big picture here. How does Matthew start his gospel? Matthew starts his gospel listing the genealogy of Christ. And he says, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And now he closes his gospel by telling, telling his disciples to go to all nations. What Matthew is telling us is that this has been God's plan all along. The promise that he told Abraham way back in Genesis, the promise he told Abraham that his seed is going to, be, it's going to bless all nations, this is what we're seeing play out. And we're still seeing it play out today. The, 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 the promise to Abraham, the, the blessing of all nations, doesn't, didn't stop with the Gospels. You are part of God's plan. Beginning with Abraham, you are part of God's plan with Abraham. God is... is being faithful to the Abrahamic covenant and, blessings, and blessing all nations. And the way he's being faithful is through your faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. So this command isn't simply just tell the gospel. This command is, is to show God's love and faithfulness to the nations. 
So how do we make disciples? Well, there's three verbs, three verbs, three participles. Remember, uh, uh, going back to English class, participles and ing verb. Um, so the first, the first one we see right after that is baptizing. We are to be baptizing people. Now that doesn't mean, uh, or that, as you said, that doesn't just happen. You don't meet somebody who said, hey, you want to be baptized? You get dunked in water. It's kind of fun. That's not at all baptism, right? Baptism is an understanding of someone who has made a public confession of faith, that they understand faith, they understand the gospel, that they understand what to believe in the gospel and to repent, and they understand that in baptizing, they are dying to themselves and dying with Christ, and they are raised with Christ to new life. That takes a lot of teaching. So when we say baptizing, there's already a lot that goes into there, more than just make a choice for the gospel, it's, I want to see you live for the gospel, and I want to teach you what that means. So we are to go out and baptize. Uh, baptism doesn't save, but it is indicative of someone who has given their life to Christ. And I, I love how Jesus says it here. He says, baptizing in the name, and notice it's singular there, in the singular name of who? Well, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is indicative of the union the believers enjoy with the triune God. We are baptized in the name of God. We identify with everything that God is. So who does this baptizing? Who's supposed to baptize? Well, if we take this command as for the church, it is the church that baptizes. And here at CBC, if you're influential in leading someone to Christ, if you're the one who's going out making disciples, and here's this person that you have led to Christ, we want you to baptize them. It's not just a job for a pastor. Making disciples is not just what pastors do. It's what believers do. And when we're looking at baptizing, baptizing is a description of making disciples. So we baptize as part of making disciples, but we also teach. Right? We, we, we don't just teach the commands of God or teach the commands of Christ. We don't, our, our teaching isn't just supposed to be um, knowledge-based because that's not what Jesus tells them. What does Jesus say? Look at verse, 19, uh, verse 20. He says, teach them to observe. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So this is a little different, right? It's, it's not just teach them, teach them what I commanded you. Teach them the law. Teach them what, what to do and what not to do. Is teach them to observe. They teach them to live in a way that they obey God. Encourage them to walk with Christ. And you know what we call this today? Cause discipleship. This is when you come alongside a brother or sister and you said, let me help you walk in Christ better with Christ. Let me help you and encourage you in your walk with Christ. And so we think about the Great Commission. Yes, preach the gospel, but don't preach the gospel, see someone saved, and then walk away. Come alongside them. Help them in their walk with Christ. Help them to live holy lives. And so proclaim the gospel doesn't stop when someone gets saved. We need to hear the gospel over and over again, not just and proclaiming it, but we need to hear the gospel over and over again from each other. There's one more verb that I haven't touched on. It's a first verb. First verb, going, typically translated go. <laughs> I think the Christian life is interesting here. Jesus says, come to me. It's come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You go to Jesus. And Jesus says, go. Go to Jesus, come, and he says, go. Christian life is interesting, but when he tells us to go, he, he tells us to go, and we'll get to this later, but he tells us to go, and he's going to go with us. And he doesn't say, go, and I'll see you later. He goes with us. So he's telling us to go, um, and, and we all have to go. I think our, our, our pastor said it last week, you don't stare and stay at the empty tomb. You go and tell. We rejoice in the empty tomb. We praise the Lord and, and, and we glorify God in the empty tomb, but we go and tell. Now, what does this going look like? Well, going looks like when you get a new job, when you get move into a new neighborhood. Going looks like when you're moving in your daily routine and you 
encounter and have a conversation with someone who doesn't believe Christ? You're going and you make disciples wherever you go. You proclaim the disciple, you, you proclaim the gospel and you make disciples to this nation. Now, it is very possible that some of you are called to go to other nations. That God is even now preparing you to become a missionary to a nation that you would never have thought to go to. We have seen that in our own church. Our dear family, the Turners, sent to Albania, rejoice in the Lord. And if that's you, if you feel that pull, if you feel that call, you must obey the call. It is a call that I would say must be biblically informed. It is a call that must be made through spiritual maturity and through uh, church-affirming actions. But it is a call that you must obey. And those of us who aren't called, those of us who aren't called to go out to the nations, we have an imperative too. We need to support the ministry of the word going out. Our worship of God, the authority of Christ, those two things demands that we support the, the ministry, support the outgoing um, efforts of the gospel. So what are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your time? Are you supporting missionaries? I think we could get so sidetracked. Well, what's the point? What's our mission as believers? Our mission as believers is to proclaim the gospel. Well, let's use our money for that. Let's use our effort and our energy and our prayer time for that. We're so blessed to, to have three missionaries that, that we support as a church here. Um, just recently, uh, Kelly sent out the, uh, the Turners, their, their update. Read through that. Read the Turner update. Pray for them. Encourage them. Their dear brothers and sisters, brothers and brother and sister with his kids, and they're out there ministering the gospel. They need prayer. They need support. And we're the people to do it. So here are our fundamental principles. We are to, to worship. We are to let worship fuel our evangelism. We are to rest and submit to the authority of Christ, and we are to obey the command of the Great Commission. I have one more, and this is the last verse here, verse 20. We are to take comfort in the promise of our risen Savior. Verse 20, the end of verse 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <clears throat> when, when Jesus says this statement, there is a strong emphasis on the word I in the Greek. Uh, he's saying lo, he's saying listen up, this is important stuff, I want you to pay attention with this. And he says, I, even I myself, right, with the emphasis, me, the risen Savior, will be with you all the days. What a promise. That means Christ isn't ever going to abandon you. That means the Lord of Lords, the one who has all authority in the heavens and earth, will be with us. I just think of, of, of my kids, or just, I guess, kids in general. I mean, they get so, so easily, like, scared or frightened. Um, Tell them to go into a dark room, and it's like, oh, I don't want to. I'm like, it's the same room that it was, like, two hours ago. Um, but what a difference it makes if you tell them, what if I go right behind you? What if I go there holding your hand? And the very presence of you as your parents or as an adult just dissuades all fear. Like, oh yeah, okay, no problem, I'll go there. And the reason why is because they could turn around and they'll know that they'll be embraced by protective arms. They'll be in their parents' arms on a second's notice. Oh, it's the same with us in Christ. Christ is in heaven, but he's not going to abandon us. He, he's he's going to continue ministering to us. He's going to continue interceding and advocating for us. He's going to continue loving us as his sheep. Christ is with us. And what Matthew said earlier in his gospel, he called Jesus Emmanuel. And indeed, that is who Jesus is, God with us. And whether you're speaking to your neighbor, whether you're, you're, gonna, whether you're going to take a gospel to a people group who never heard Jesus, and you're going to be there in the desert alone, Christ is going to be with you. That's his promise. And that should encourage us because of who Christ is. Christ has been given all authority, and he is with us. 
So think about all the times we need this. All the times we need this while we obey his commandment. Some of you have uh, an unsafe spouse that hasn't responded to the gospel. My brother and sister, Christ is with those in those nights where you are feeling estranged from your spouse. Christ is with you. For those of you who are ministering to children, giving, to, giving the gospel and being discouraged but not seeing any fruit, you're not parenting alone. Christ is with you. For those of you who have parent, uh, kids who have rejected, you're not alone there. Christ is with you there. And maybe you're going through a trial right now. And you need to be telling yourself the gospel every day and every hour. Know that even in that trial, Christ is never going to abandon you. He is alive today. He is alive. He is alive. And he is with us. He knows our suffering. So you are not alone. You are with the supreme authoritative redeemer who's always caring for you, who's always seeking after you, who's always with you. My encouragement to you all, keep your eyes focused on him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Don't let the doubts pull you away. Fix your eyes on Jesus and, and boldly proclaim those excellencies. Dwell on those things that lead you to worship and proclaim those to the lost world. Let's pray. Father, what comforting news that you are with us even to the end of the age, that even though you command us, even though you are demanding of us to do something, to go out and proclaim to the nations, you are with us. Lord, you give the grace needed to, to obey you every day. So I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would inflame our hearts with worship, Lord, so that we would go out and boldly proclaim the good news to the lost. Praise Jesus' name. Amen.